The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm Eric Savitz, Associate Editor for Technology at Barron's. I am uh, uh, excited to have with me today Brooke Dane, who is a tech fund manager at Goldman Sachs. Um, uh, Brooke is a, uh, a returnee uh, to, the, to the program. I'm glad to have him back. Brooke, just uh, before we dive in, just um, mention, I know you run a couple of different funds. Maybe you could just mention them in case people are going to know. Sure, Eric. It's great to be back on. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, so uh, I'm the co-manager of our dedicated tech strategies in the mid and large cap space. So the two prime funds that I work on from a tech perspective are uh, the Goldman Sachs Future Technology Leaders Fund. It's an, uh, an actively managed ETF. And then I also co-manage our Technology Opportunities Fund, which is a 40-act fund that is more U.S.-focused and more large cap focused. So those are the two primary tech uh, investments that I work on. What's the ticker on ETF? Uh, G-T-E-K. Okay, so people can write that down. Okay, so let's jump in. So um, I want to start off with uh, what is the most obvious and hottest topic in tech uh, right now, which is generative AI. Uh, now, you know, nobody was really talking about this until last November uh, when uh, OpenAI uh, released, uh, you know, the chat GPT on the world. Um, and since then, people have been in a mad scramble to try and figure out how to play this trend. Um, the obvious answer in most cases has been NVIDIA, which makes processors uh, that are used for training large language models, and that sort of thing. And Microsoft, um, in part because of its early announcement of uh, the use of ChatGPT and Bing. And of course, they own a gigantic chunk of OpenAI, but that doesn't seem like a sufficient answer. And I'd like to know how you think about it. This is, of course, very, very early in this uh, phenomenon, um, but people are super excited and it does feel like a real thing. Yeah, so first off, um, you know, I would say that, you know, I've been a tech investor for more than 30 years now. This is one of, if not the most exciting you know, tech developments that I've seen across my entire career. So like the, the power of these models and how I think they're going to change essentially knowledge worker productivity over the coming 5, 10, 15 years is, you know, profound and, you know, a super important trend that we need to be focused on as active investors and trying to understand who's going to benefit, who's going to win, who's going to drive, you know, profits and cash flows and, and all of the, the good things that we look for as an active investor. So, you know, um, fully like, focusing on where can we find these next winners and, and what do they look like? And as you've said, you know, this is super early, right? It, it is, um, we are right at the very front end of this kind of revolution happening. And even, you know, the biggest kind of player on the software side, Microsoft, who you talked about, you know, they talked in their quarter about how they expect that the, the AI related, gen AI related workloads adding 1% to their Azure growth. And if you, if you back into the math, it's talking about 
driving maybe 150 million of incremental revenue in the quarter to Microsoft. So still relatively tiny in the scope of all things Microsoft. Right. But importantly, you are seeing customer adoption and people moving aggressively forward on this. And, and we do think this is going to be a, a, just a very big driver of the tech ecosystems as we think about you know, the coming one, three, five years going forward. Yeah. Also, as you mentioned, I do think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity beyond just those two uh, vendors that you mentioned that you know, the people are invested in and focused on, right? So we were just talking earlier, but like, you know, Google, you've seen this, you know, 180 degree pivot from where people two, three months ago thought that, you know, they were going to be AI losers. Now they've, you know, shown enough of the product and, and investors are beginning to have faith again. We clearly think that, you know, over the any horizon that, that Google is going to be an AI winner. They have incredible technology and, you know, they're just being a little bit more measured in terms of how they roll it out and how we see it. But yeah, them, I, I noticed that um, in their recent uh, uh, <clears throat> Google I.O. event where they unveiled a bunch of uh, new technology that made everybody feel better, um, they used the word responsible uh, like a hundred times. Yeah. So I, I think they are trying to distinguish themselves. And in, in an area, by the way, where there's a lot of uh, hand-wringing and fear about, about this technology, not just opportunity, but also concern that it will throw people out of work, that it will, uh, that robots will, you know, conquer the world, that kind of stuff, right? Like there's a lot of uh, kind of, uh, I think, un and, and of course, lots of examples of uh, uh, chatbots giving bad information or yeah. acting in weird ways and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's one of the themes that we definitely should, should dive in a little bit uh, deeper on just because I think that's one way you can start to think about identifying the winners is, is how different companies are approaching this and, and from the the data standpoint, how do you how do you embrace these technologies, but also make sure to the best extent you can from an enterprise standpoint that you're protected from a, a legal and regulatory standpoint that the, the chatbots aren't giving crazy uh, answers that would you know destroy brand power of your company and and that they're actually giving you know information that you want. So we can we can dive into that, but I agree yeah, with yeah. the you know the basic premise that. Um, the adoption of this is going to be measured somewhat as companies begin to try and understand kind of the edge of that curve and, and where uh, where and how they can use some of the data that they've collected internally in a way that um, can help productivity. Personally, like again, it, it is, I, I'm going to say a thousand times in this in this webcast, it's so early that you know we're seeing how these trends evolve. I do think this is going to be though more of a driver of productivity and an enhancement for people uh, to do their jobs better and more efficiently instead mm -hmm. of a replacing workforce. Um, and it's going to be very knowledge worker focused. Um, and so those high skilled jobs out there are the ones that are going to see, you know, a very big uptick in, in kind of the productivity across labor forces. So, so, very so when, you, when you look at this, uh, when you look at the current sort of shape of the AI space, let's talk a little bit about opportunities beyond the obvious names. Yep. And I will note that there's a bunch of small cap names that people have speculated on, things like C3AI and Palantir and even smaller cap names that have I've had, that have seen stocks really move a lot. Um, uh, they get sort of a, a, a lot of, um, uh, a, a lot of individual investor attention, but it feels like there ought to be some other substantial winners here. And I'm curious what you've found so far. Yeah. And, you know, it is, it's interesting, like the, over the last three weeks, we've seen a bunch of firms come out with their AI winners and AI losers baskets. Right. What's been fascinating as a long-term active investor, you know, um, who does deep fundamental research is how massively stocks have moved 
on simply the creation of these baskets and you get put in the the loser basket and your stock goes down you know 12 percent in two days and you get put in the winner basket and you you know you go up by like amount and frankly when we you know kind of look through the the what's in the baskets we disagree with a reasonable amount of things with you know reasonable amounts of passion about from our standpoint why we think a company that may be considered a loser is a winner but let me let me talk about how we are approaching investing in this sector sure. it, it is hugely important and it's going to be a driver of alpha for our clients over you know the the coming years so first off the picks and shovels areas essentially the technology that's enabling uh, the data centers to run these workloads is is clearly an area that you want to be focused on the second big area is the data infrastructure around this because data is the key to all this Mm -hmm. Third would be the security paradigms that you have to think about. And then the fourth would be what are we seeing on the applications layer that's really exciting. So, you know, we can we can go through each yeah, one so of let's, those. Let's walk through those. Yeah. So on, on the picks and shovels standpoint and on the enabling technologies, you know, beyond the, the names that you guys you mentioned earlier, another name that I would introduce into the discussion is a company called Marvell Technologies. It's a semiconductor sure. company. But why they benefit and why we think that um you know, this is kind of one that the market hasn't focused on yet. Their connectivity solutions are what you're going to be using in these data centers to make sure that the workloads happen fast and quickly and with very low latency and in the most efficient way possible. And they have some of the best collection of connectivity assets out there. And we just think that they're going to be one of these things is the data centers get re-architected to benefit from this. First order connectivity really matters. They're a leader in that space. The second piece is, is that, you know, everyone's talked about how these architectures are very GPU focused and, mm -hmm. and very much driven by, um, you know, the NVIDIA product line. As this technology gets a little bit more mature, uh, data centers are going to be running these with GPU front ends, but then also ASIC back ends because it's essentially going to lower the cost of building these data centers. Right. You know, there's essentially two main companies that are leading in the ASIC world and the ASIC development. And and that's really going to benefit Marvell as well. So they're one of those. So that, that would be a name. Um, another um, group of companies uh, that we look at a lot are the EDA tools. So essentially the, the software that helps semiconductors, um, semiconductor companies design. Right, electronic design. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there we really like Cadence and we think there's a long kind of opportunity there in front of them. So yeah. those would be a couple names on the picks and shovel side and and we're still digging through so some of the other. Like, though, on the ASIC side, you said there's two players. You mentioned Marvell, yeah. is there another? There is. So I want to be a little bit careful because we don't actually own the other right now. And so from okay. my uh we like to talk about names that we own and that we're active so yes okay. there's another there's another uh reasonably large company that does uh asic uh design work as well and i'm sure any uh, investor can, can okay do we'll their homework on that okay yeah okay. exactly so okay. but so we do think marvell is particularly attractive and, and has right. a has a real window here where they're going to show um you know over the i think we think over the next few quarters people are going to begin to really focus in on how this transition in the data centers will really materially benefit Marvell. So we're very positive there. It's also super well managed and we know the team exceptionally well and we just think it's, you know, it's a very compelling idea right now. And then not to get too bullish on Marvell here, but as you think about semiconductor cycles and what happens under the hood in semiconductors, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, semiconductors go, are, they're a cyclical industry. They go through oversupply, undersupply and, and pricing dynamics. Many of the companies that have been levered to data centers from a semi perspective last year um, basically had a, a supply demand imbalance where the, the hyperscalers weren't spending much on CapEx. 
inventories built, pricing went down. We actually think we're on the flip side of that now and that you're going to see just stronger data center spending, especially relative to other parts of the semi-market. So we think there's a, a real opportunity there. And the, the last name that I would, I would talk about um, from a data center semi-spending uh, standpoint was only talked about uh, also just a couple of moments ago, but uh, on the memory side, you know, these workloads are very memory intense and you're going to need to spend more on uh, memory. And, and we think that will benefit um, a company like Micron. So those would be so just- Micron's, Micron is, a, is like a case study in the extreme swings of uh, the semiconductor uh, market. Of course, they, they've been uh, almost, you know, because their ties, not just to the data center, but also PCs and to handsets, yep. all of which have been uh, had some uh, demand issues in the last few quarters, all of which overstocked inventory. Yep. You had um, some, you look at, if you just, without without a sense of history, if you looked at like the last quarter from Micron, uh, you think the, the the wheels were coming off, right? Like the revenue was down like 50% or something like that. Right. And they did talk at the time um, about how they thought that uh, uh, that these the inventory problem they were having, which is basically, if your customer has too much inventory, they're not buying parts for you anymore, or at least not for the moment. Uh, yep. that, that that cleaning up that process had actually started and they think things would materially improve. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. And so I, I know you've spoken before to my, my co-manager, Sung Cho, who is one of the world's most talented semiconductor investors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he really has been, um, you know, the prime driver between us, you know, trying to pick through what's happened in the memory market and find opportunity. And um, so, you know, it, it's a name we are excited about. He's um, he's done some really detailed work around kind of where the supply demand picture lies, what should happen to gross margins in that business and how to think about the risk reward trade-off. The one thing, especially in a deeply cyclical semi uh, company like this one, you know, risk and reward um, are the things you have to be focused on. And, and what do you think your downside looks like if you're wrong, because it's largely a commodity market. It's it's very hard you know, to forecast the future with precision in growth commodity markets. So you really have to be playing with that big margin of safety. And you know, as we see there today, we think that Micron is set up um, you know, to provide you that margin of safety. And if we're right about the way um, both the supply and then the demand pictures evolve over the coming quarters, it should set up to be nicely, but you know that that is a perfect example of a volatile stock that you need to own in the context of a portfolio and understand those trade-offs. Otherwise, you know, um, yeah, you can you can get damaged if you're not careful yeah. with it. So okay, so those, so that's the picks and shovels. Yep. So let's go to part two. So part two, I would just say just the broad data infrastructure and what you know. From a research perspective, one of the things we've been doing is talking to a lot of enterprises out there about how they're thinking about deploying AI and how they look at these large language models. Mm -hmm. A couple common themes have emerged. First of all, every company wants to train these models on their own internal data to help with, um, with workflow and work processes. So essentially, one example, I was speaking with a, a large bank um, just last week uh, who was talking about essentially they were using this for their internal um, processes and procedures manuals. So if you were opening a new account and had questions about, you know, how do you do something complicated, you could use these tools to surface the right answer to the rep at the right time and help them just be more efficient. So this bank had basically taken their data, trained the, the open AI models on their data in their data warehouse or in their, their private cloud to help, you know, uh, respond and 
provide the right solutions. The benefit from the bank was is that they weren't sharing any of this data back to the wide world. They weren't making their competitors smarter about how they were doing things. But to get to that end state, they had a three or four month process of essentially cleaning and sandboxing their data to get them in a position where they could actually then train the models on it. Um, you know, that effort um, benefits companies that are, you know, in, in the prime focus of the data space. So think about a company like Snowflake where, you know, this should over time be a big driver of, of Snowflake's businesses. Companies use their tools to clean the data, to sandbox the data, to then train the models on. Um, then there's a whole um, group of companies like uh, Datadog and others who were doing the software that basically helps you optimize those workloads and go to kind of think through how you're spending and whether you're doing them in the most efficient ways. The final piece on all of this, sorry. Um, the, uh, <coughs> sorry. The, the, uh, the final piece on both those companies is they're more consumption driven models. And that also is a part of the market that's been under pressure as the wider cloud ecosystems has spent the last kind of four quarters optimizing workloads. We think we're kind of getting through the, the belly of that curve. So AI is a nice additive things to both of those companies into their intermediate term growth rates. At the same time, the, the nearer term picture is turning more positive as you're kind of getting to the, the, the back end of optimizations. I do want to be clear, like that this isn't a call on Snowflake's quarter, which they're about to report. Yeah, um, yeah and, and I, I'm, I often joke with my team that I'm an old software investor, which means that you've seen lots of software companies, you know, disappoint in a short-term basis, but you understand that the long-term opportunity in front of the, all these companies can be fantastic, but nobody has the ability to, to forecast a software company's quarter with any sort of real precision on any, you know, 90-day cycle. So, but, um, but we do think like those would be two examples of what's happening on the data side. And really, when we think about what drives competitive advantage in AI, it's big sets of proprietary data, it's large installed bases that you could sell that proprietary data, you know, with AI functionality on top of into, um, mm -hmm. and then kind of more platform companies. But in the data space, it's what helps you clean the data, what helps you sandbox the data so that you can trade these models on, and then what helps you optimize the, the data up in the cloud, so. Now, you know, the interesting, one interesting thing about, you know, so, so when we talk about this optimization pro, uh, process, we've seen all, all three of the largest uh, cloud vendors Amazon Web Services and Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud have been talking about optimization, which is sort of a nice way of saying uh, we're, we're trying to find ways so that our customers can, don't have to spend quite so much money. Yeah. Um, and, and they've all been talking about it now for a few quarters. Um, and it's it, it seems perfectly logical. I mean, I always, I always point out that like the fact that you can dial down your usage of the cloud is a feature, not a bug. Like that's the way these systems. That's why it works. Yeah, uh, that's how it works. Uh, that's how consumption models work. Um, but on the other hand, I think you make a really interesting point, which is that AI should be like a you know an accelerant um, for the for the cloud more generally. Now, I'm not sure you would necessarily buy Amazon for that reason, uh, or you even you know I mean, might buy Microsoft, but you're probably not thinking of it in terms of well, it'll drive more traffic. To, yeah, and, sure, but it, but it is an interesting phenomenon overall. Yeah, and the, I mean, you look specifically at the, you know the OpenAI OpenAI stuff, and that all is run on Azure. So, like, if you want to be exploring these models and using these workloads, you're running them in Azure, right? Now, you can run them in sandbox data centers where your data doesn't commingle with someone else's, but it will drive cloud utilization going forward. And you know, the other thing, just on the optimization point, you know, we've done a lot of work around this, and 
the history of this is basically when we were moving through the COVID crisis, companies were, you know, moving as fast as they possibly could to get workloads up into the cloud from a resilient standpoint. It just made, you know, it it was so much easier to to push things to the cloud fast so that you could continue to operate your business as your workforce became hybrid and and you know dispersed around the world and right. and you were trying to react to changes. When you did that though, you really weren't focused on costs. You were focused on how do I get the business running in this new world we're in? You know, then last year was the point where many CIOs and CFOs said, okay, hang on, like we've done this, but let's now tune it and make it, you know, make it efficient and as efficient as it can be. Mm-hmm. My observation is when you go through that process, anytime, any process that you're trying to make more efficient, you always find a tremendous amount of headroom that you can drive out of a process. But your first kind of cut through trying to optimize something is when you get the most of the gains, right? That's when you first look at this thing and you say, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're over-provisioned here and that's a big dollar thing and we can pull that back. So just from a sheer time basis, we've been through a lot of that. Now, you know, do we have another quarter or two of optimization in front of us? We could, but I don't think we have another five years where that headwind is going to be pushing down right. cloud growth. And, and we're nowhere near the normalized state of where cloud is going to be in terms of the, the wider IT footprint. Right. So the, the secular tailwind is still, even before you get to AI, the secular tailwind around cloud is still very compelling and 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 very interesting. So. Okay. So you had four areas where yeah. you were talking about. So I think we've done two. So like... Uh, Security. Uh, Security, 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 which security. is a non-obvious, maybe a little bit non-obvious one for some. Yeah. So what I would say is, is that anytime you get a big change in the threat landscape, um, it's very good for cybersecurity companies, right? So this is going to introduce a whole new realm of mayhem out there into the world as bad actors take advantage of this technology and do things that you know you and I can't even think of right now. It's right. coming though, right? You know. Um, and you're starting to see some of the spoofing things that people are doing and things like that. So we're going to need new forms of protection against um, the bad actors that are going to take advantage of this technology. What you want to look for in a security company is they also have incredible sources of data, right? So uh, Palo Alto is a name that we've we've owned for many, many years. We know that team very well. You know, they have access to just, you know, scale of data and showing threat vectors that's you know that dwarfs anything that any individual enterprise could do they're going to be able to run ai models across that data to identify threats early faster uh, and more better and more better good english broke um, <laughs> earlier and faster and better than than um, many other companies because of that scale advantage and so we really do like that area as an area where you're going to see increased spending you're going to see companies adapt new models and that's going to drive um, you know some of the big platform companies so we would say Palo Alto and Zscaler would be two names that stick out to us as real beneficiaries of this trend as we move forward um, so, so I, I would note that Palo Alto uh, like Snowflake is reporting earnings yep. uh, next week uh, yep. I would presume again this is not a call on uh, no uh, it is not a call on on the, the report this week and um, yeah so in general, you know, the way we look at investing in software companies is, um, you know, we're really, again, it's a little bit like with the semiconductor example I did earlier, we're trying to understand the risk reward, but really what we're trying to do is understand where we think the normalized growth rates of these businesses are um, and what their normalized levels of profitability could get to, and then start to think about what multiple do you want to pay for that level of cash flow. And, um, you know, 
software companies are volatile in terms of their reporting cycles because you, as a buyer, you always want to wait to the last minute to try and strike the best deal that you can. That creates, you know, timing shifts within quarters that can, you know, make the market get very excited or very sad, depending on which way it breaks. You know, what we've learned over time is looking through that near-term perturbations, uh, you can make incredible alpha for your clients if you take advantage of um, when the market gets too pessimistic on something that was a random bump in the road versus, you know, um, the other side. Now, I will say in all these companies, you you really do have to understand the underlying growth drivers, where you are in product cycles, what's happening from an innovation standpoint, so that you make sure that the, the miss that you're, if a company misses that you're taking advantage of, isn't a secular change in what's happening in the business and instead is a, an opportunity because of a execution related issue, so. Okay, so let's move on to the fourth one. Um, yeah, so this is the earliest and will be, I think, the biggest over time. Uh, and that's what's happening in the applications layer and and where you're like, so if you look at the history of tech investing, like the mega cap leaders change and recycle a lot. Like, you know, I know all of us sit here today and think the FANG companies are, are invulnerable and they're going to persist in this, you know, giant capital range forever. History would say that is not the case. And the, the names change every five and 10 years. I do think the innovations we're seeing in AI are going to lead to creations of the next giant companies. We just haven't seen them yet. Now, from an application standpoint, you know, the, the first thing we're looking at is like, where's the obvious um, places these tools can get um, deployed in a responsible, safe way? That leads us to think about companies uh, like HubSpot is a great example of this, where we think, you know, their core value proposition is helping small and medium businesses engage with their customers in a, you know, in a, in a more positive way. Now, HubSpot has announced a little bit of tooling around this and, and some products, but it's, you know, it's good. we're going to know a lot more about how they're approaching this market over the coming 12 months than we do today. But there's an opportunity there for a company that is the center of gravity for their installed base in terms of how they engage with customers. If you can make those companies more productive and more efficient in how they tune their marketing messages, how they do their outreach to clients, they're going to pay you more. And, you know, so before the AI thing, HubSpot's a fantastic business. It's doing really well. They're growing their customers, you know, at, at rates faster than the market had been thinking they were going to. We think it's persistent for a long time. But AI should add another level of, you know, growth to this business. It should enable them to price in attractive ways. We didn't talk about this earlier, but one of the most positive things from a Developments of this market has been what Microsoft has been talking around pricing and and charging premium pricing for AI functionalities. That is a big positive to the whole ecosystem because it becomes you know the standard way of thinking about um, how you price AI functionality. So HubSpot would be a great example in that like that. But there's lots of companies that we're looking at and trying to understand you know how they can use this technology to enhance the value of the platform that they're delivering to their customers and um, you know it, so. Stay tuned. Yeah, um, I, one that I find um, I find interesting is uh, uh, Duolingo, the uh, language uh, training uh, company, uh, which is which has added an, an AI version of the software, which allows you to hold um, conversations with with uh, you know with the AI. Um, and what I th thought was so clever about that was that uh, early language learners uh, find it incredibly awkward. Word, like the whole conversations with real people since they sound stupid. Uh, and I've yeah. been playing with it a little bit, and I, I, uh, 
I do find that it's actually like kind of a reasonably compelling experience and they are charging quite a premium for uh, for this version of software. I thought that was interesting. Now there's also a contrary example that happened recently where um, Chegg, uh, the education software company announced that their business, which is like doing like homework help um, has really been hurt by by the arrival of ChatGPT because people are using that for free instead of paying for Chegg. Um, and I suspect we're just at the very, very edge of seeing both positive and uh, negative versions of that kind of story. Yeah, I, right, that, that application. I would, yeah, I would agree completely with that. I haven't looked at the Duolingo. I'm, I, I will, uh, as a, as a, a guy that's trying to like keep his brain flexible and learn new languages, I, uh, I may have to give that a whirl. Yeah, it's, kind of, a, it's kind of a fun one to, uh, to play with. Um, so I want to, um, you know, we have just a few minutes left. I want to um, pull back a little bit and and talk about where we are in sort of tech valuations. Um, yeah. Or, more generally, because this is kind of a weird market. Like we've had um, a big run in tech shares this year after a terrible year last year. Um, the economy is still uh, kind of funky. Um, you know, we may have a recession, who knows? The Fed on the other hand seems to be at least mostly done. Uh, we don't know exactly where they are. Um, and of course, one of the big pressures on tech stocks, stocks last year uh, was the aggressive uh, uh, rate rises by the Fed. So we seem to be through that. So that seems like, okay, so we've dodged that bullet or at least, you know, survived that wound. Um, so where do you think we are in terms of valuations as you look at them? The yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. Like I think year to date, you know, um, you have seen the mega cap vendors really power through, right? And and that, that collections of stocks are up in the kind of 20 percent plus yeah, or minus yeah. zone, all of them, right? And some of them more than that. The breadth of tech though is essentially in the zone of flat year to date. And they all ran in the beginning of the year as, as people began to say, okay, the, the rate cycle is flattening or normalizing and, and you know, valuations bounce back up. But then when we went through the, the regional banking crisis, some other things, people began to get worried about the broader economy and, and many of the names pulled right back down to kind of where they started the year. You know, from a valuation standpoint, we are and always have been free cash flow based investors. We're always looking at, you know, kind of one, two, three year out free cash flows, what that power of the company is. We're finding great opportunities right now, especially in that mid cap space where you are seeing companies that are growing what we think are sustainably in the 20 plus percent range with great operating profitability and free cash flow generation right now, trading at two and a half, three percent free cash flow yields, which is just a very attractive, in an absolute sense, that's a very attractive um, standpoint. Now, you know, I don't know whether we'll slip into a recession, whether it'll be a slowdown, how it will work. Clearly, credit is tightening out there. And, you know, there's some signs that the economy is slowing. All that said, though, you're still in all the CIO work we do and all the discussions we have with um, people, buyers of technology, the impetus, the big drivers behind tech spending still remain, right? Everybody wants to be more efficient in their business processes. Everyone needs to digitalize their enterprise. Everyone needs to make sure that they're acting with the speed and agility that they can to respond to competitive threats. So we haven't seen any kind of material pullback in tech spending on the, the software um, kind of layers. Now, look, you know, parts of the market like PCs and some other hardware things, you know, are in in distress right now, and we would expect that to continue. But um, in general, the broad outlook for tech from a demand perspective remains pretty positive. And in fact, you know, most companies, if you went all the way back to you know November of 21 and kind of looked where forecasts are and where they are today. 
some of the like overexcited growth has come in a little bit, but the fundamental growth rates in many of these businesses haven't actually changed. What they've changed is that they've become you know much more uh, profit driven. They've become much more rational in their spending, um, but the good companies are continuing to execute and, and build fantastic businesses we see there today. So that's a you know that's a long way of saying I'm really encouraged by the opportunities that we see right now. Um, and you know we do think um, you know there's there's always risks in the market. Like you could talk geopolitical tensions. You you know if the recession is a lot worse than we think, you could see pressure on that. Uh, if um, if the labor market changes, one of the surprises has been how resilient labor has been over the past year. If that materially changes, there's some risk to some of the seat-based licensing models um, out there. But everything we're looking at right now leads us to think that you know things are pretty good from a tech perspective, and we're encouraged by the opportunity set. Okay, I want to talk about one other area that I meant to get to, which um, we had talked a little bit before we uh, we went on the air here, um, which is semiconductor equipment stocks. And yeah, so there's this really interesting divide where. You know, a lot of the semiconductor companies who have been dealing with, as we talked about earlier, with, you know, excess demand have been reducing plans for expansion, reducing capacity, that kind of thing. Um, that That's going to lead to like a few quarters of pretty bad, uh, pretty bad uh, numbers and pretty bad demand for semiconductor equipment. On the other hand, uh, we've, you know, we've got the CHIPS Act. And like Intel and Micron and a few other companies planning to build very large, very expensive, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars uh, over that will be spent over in, in coming months and years uh, to build new fabs. And that would make me think, well, the long run looks pretty good for these companies, even if the short run looks bad. And so you'll have like some quarters with like bad looking earnings numbers. Uh, despite what looks like something really brilliant on the horizon. And so it yeah. makes me wonder like how how people should be thinking about the stocks and like how they and how they acted have acted historically, you know, in the, in these kinds of I don't know if there is yeah. a comparison. Yeah. So first of all, if you were to say to to my team, to the group I work with, like what's your perfect opportunity set to make and drive long-term alpha for our clients? Like we would talk about something where there's some near-term cyclical concern around a business, but we felt incredibly positive about the secular long-term demand drivers. And oh, also we felt like the industry structure was very rational and the management teams by and large were, you know, really good capital allocators and really good capitalists. Like that's the kind of stuff where we get really excited. Right. And and so, you know, we do think semicap is in exactly one of those moments right now where people are, are concerned about the short term, um, but the long term fundamental drivers of this business are really attractive. And the industry has consolidated over the past decade to where there's a handful of players who understand, you know, how to run their businesses and, and what drives long term economic returns. And so it is an area we're very focused on now. Um, you know, it's always a. Uh, a question of near-term, long-term trade-offs in these stocks. And, you know, um, as you've seen, like there's there's pressure every time you see, oh, the memory makers are pulling back on CapEx because of how bad, you know, the memory cycle is right now or something like that. Yeah. But on the other hand, our confidence in the impacts of things like the CHIP Act and then just the, the need for more leading edge capacity, you know, over the coming years to fund all these AI workloads that we're talking about right. remains very high. So like, you know, when we... We build all of our portfolios from the bottom up, right? We're, we're identifying individual stocks. We like this stock. We don't like that stock. You know, here's our, you know, 
in 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 GTech. Here's our 60 favorite global mid cap tech names. Right. Um, we start from that. Like, do we like this individual stock? But when we step back and look at the portfolio, a couple themes always are emerging in there and, and have been persistent. But semi cap is one of the the big areas of focus for us in this portfolio because we do think it's such an attractive opportunity. And, you know, and what, what would you? What would what what stocks would you use to play it? Yeah, so uh, we really like KLA right now. It's probably our favorite of the names out there. Um, there's also, there are some others that we own. There's, um, you know, uh, some of the the areas around it, like Integris is a name that we've owned some of. We own some ASMI, which is the 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 baby under ASML. That's the, the sister company that, of the right, two of them. Right. That's more of a mid-cap name. Um, so those are the names. But KLA really, I think, is the one that we're the most focused on as having a real opportunity as we sit here right now. Okay, so I want to just, uh, just to close things out, I want to come back to sort of where we started and one other chip name I want to talk a, bit, a little bit about to get your view. I've got like, there's a couple of reader questions, uh, listener questions, I should say, um, about NVIDIA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a fascinating story. The stock has had a big run. Um, it is super popular. It is loved by, it's beloved, right? You've got a, you know, founder CEO who's dynamic. They've not only are they doing this, but they're pursuing opportunities in like automotive and like a bunch of other new spaces that go way beyond, you know, their old, you know, PC graphics card business, right? Um, but the valuation is a little scary. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious about whether you own it and how you think about NVIDIA. Yeah. So um, we, so by the way, in the two tech funds that we manage, the uh, the Future Tech Leaders Fund, GTech, we actually don't own anything over $100 billion in U.S. dollar market cap because okay. we want to be focused on that mid-cap opportunity set. So in that fund, just by, by charter, essentially, we, we don't own something that big. In uh, the Tech Opportunities Fund, the 40 Act Open-Ended Fund, uh, it is a name uh, that we own in that fund. Uh, and this is, I have to talk as of the last disclosed kind of quarter thing, just from a regular but it, it was a, a whole, as the last disclosed whole, you know, uh, picture of that portfolio, we owned that stock. In general, with companies like this, where there is, you know, an incredibly op attractive secular opportunity, um, where the growth rate uh, likely continues to surprise the market on the upside, where really, you know, it's almost got an open-ended market that is addressing, right? We really focus on managing position size. So, the valuation on static multiples and on near-term multiples is expensive. We actually, you know. We don't think that the the longer term valuation is um, is as expensive as the market looks if you're just looking at year forward PEs or, or free cash flows, right? But if you if you stretch your horizons a little bit more, um, the valuation is you know is less um, demanding. All that said, though, because it is a relatively expensive stock, you really do have to manage your position sizes because if you're wrong, it's actually it's a little bit about what happened last year. Like when you think about the values of tech stocks. You know, it's the growth rate, it's the cash flows, and then it's what your discount rate is. Last year, we had a big change in the discount rate. Right. Long duration assets pulled in tremendously. Right. With a company like NVIDIA, the duration of that growth should stretch for very long periods of time. Mm -hmm. But if we're wrong about that by a little bit, the valuation changes dramatically in either sense. Right. Our precision, you know, um, on years like five through 10 is low. Yeah. Right? And we all know that. And we know that like there's only so far you can see in the future. So, you just have to manage the size of it. Like we, we do think that there's a, a huge opportunity in front of them. You know, as you said, there's lots to be very positive about, but you need to be, um, yeah, you need to, to use the right risk reward frameworks and manage that position size effectively. 
Okay. okay. Well, we're way over time. Um, so, um, Brooke, thank you so much for a great conversation. We could keep going for longer and I'm, I think people would stick around, but uh, I'd get in trouble. Um, so thank you for uh, thank you for doing this. I hope that we'll uh, we'll get a, a chance to talk again soon. And anytime. This was a ton of fun. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for the time and uh, thanks everyone for joining. So have a great day. So um, I, I thanks uh, to everyone for joining us uh, today. Please uh, be come back tomorrow. We'll have um, Barron's Life. We'll have Market Watch reporter uh, Chris Matthews. So we'll be speaking with. Uh, Stephen Kelly of the Yale Program on Financial Stability, Financial Stability, about how federal regulators have navigated the regional banking crisis. Again, thanks for being with us. Come back again and uh, be well. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.